When implementing cryptographic primitives and cryptographic protocols, especially on low-level devices such as embedded devices and microcontrollers, it's important to think about questions of optimization, as well as questions of avoiding side-channel attacks such as power analysis attacks or, more commonly, timing attacks. How do you do that? How do you optimize an AES implementation? And what are the considerations that you have to take in mind when avoiding low-level attacks such as timing attacks? And what are the latest technologies that we can look at in order to address these problems? We're going to be discussing this and more in today's episode of Cryptography FM. Peter Schwabe is a research group leader at MPI, SP, and professor at Radboud University. He graduated from RWTH Aachen University in Computer Science in 2006 and received a PhD from the Faculty of Mathematics and Computer Science of Eindhoven University of Technology in 2011. He, his research area is cryptographic engineering, in particular the security and performance of cryptographic software. He published more than 50 articles in journals and at international conferences. And in recent years, he has focused in particular on post-quantum cryptography. He co-authored the New Hope and Entrue HRSS lattice-based peak encapsulation schemes, uh, which were used in post-quantum TLS experiments by Google and is a co-submitter of seven proposals to the NIST post-quantum crypto project, all of which made it to the second round and five of which made it to the third round. Uh, hello, Peter. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. We're also joined by Matthias Kahnwischer. He is a final year PhD student of Peter Schwabe. He is currently at the Institute of Information Science of Academia Sinica and was previously at the Max Planck Institute for Security and Privacy at Radboud University. His research focuses on embedded implementations of post-quantum cryptography. He is one of the creators of PQM4, a benchmarking and testing framework for post-quantum cryptography on the Cortex-M4 processor. Hello, Matthias. Hello, good to be here. Awesome. Great to have you guys here. So you guys are working very hard on optimizing cryptography for microcontrollers. I see that you're doing a bunch of summer schools on that, a bunch of workshops on that, as well as the master's course that you guys do on that. So you have a lot of expertise in this and you're teaching a lot of people how to do this. So maybe let's talk a bit about just a general high-level overview so that if someone is interested in the topic, of optimizing cryptographic primitives for low-level microcontrollers, which is definitely a very interesting and, and deep topic that branches out in different directions. Haha, <laughs> get it? Because you're trying to eliminate branching. Okay, we just lost the entire audience. Um, could you give us a high-level overview of, for example, which primitives you're trying to... Let's talk about the primitives that you're most interested in targeting first, and then we can go into the challenges of working with those primitives on low-level controllers. All right, maybe I start on this. So generally, we're interested in any kind of crypto primitives that people might be using on embedded microcontrollers. We're also doing optimizations for larger processors. But, well, that's not really the topic today. Um, so for the course, we're focusing on some select symmetric primitives, most notably AES and Salsa 20, and then moving over to elliptic curve cryptography, which involves 
arithmetic in large prime fields, and then on top of that, scalar multiplication algorithms and um, uh, elliptic curve arithmetic. And um, I see that you don't really seem to focus on post-quantum crypto. So that's kind of surprising because you guys work on that a lot. So maybe you could address why that is. The simple reason is that in the course that we're teaching in the master's, um, we're basically building on various earlier courses. So we're assuming that what is new for the students there is the optimization of crypto on the assembly level. And what should ideally not be new is the algorithms that they're optimizing. So in order to move to post-quantum crypto, what we would need to do is first well, move the earlier courses on cryptography to post-quantum crypto so that those things are already something that students are familiar with. That is such a good reason. I am completely convinced. You, you know, you want to focus on the technique. You want to focus on the, the art of, of optimizing and properly implementing cryptography. You don't care about fancy new primitives. You care about teaching the technique. And the hope is that uh, once the students understand the technique, that would port well to new primitives. So, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so... I feel like there's two different parts of what you're trying to do. The first part is working with primitives and making them uh, work safely on microcontrollers, so avoiding side channels. And the second part is making them work very quickly. So when you're doing this work, how, mu how much do you spend time on each part? Do you spend more time on the safety part or more time on the performance part? So this really, really depends on the scheme that you're optimizing. So, so some schemes are designed in a way that they're very easy to implement in constant time and avoid all these pitfalls. But others um, don't have this, this in mind when being designed. So for example, AS, it's, it's quite a lot harder to make this, this constant time. So there you will spend more time in, in, make, in making sure that this is secure. So ideally, if it's a good cipher that's well-designed, where this doesn't happen at all, you will spend all your time on making the code run fast. So once you've spent some time working on something and, and hopefully making it constant time, for example, which is one class of side channel attacks, um, for, for readers who don't know, so co constant time means that the operations of a cryptographic primitives, um, for listeners, I mean, uh, operations of cryptographic primitives take the same amount of time, uh, regardless of the inputs and outputs. I'm not going to bother to ask Peter and Matthias to explain this because you can just do it in a single sentence. Uh, because otherwise, based on the timing that something takes... Um, you can determine information about the secret keys, for example, in certain cases. So um, when you when you create something that's constant time, how do you validate that it's constant time? How do you, do you look at the resulting assembly and you check for branching? Do you just run it with a bunch of inputs naively and, and see whether it roughly takes? I, I don't think this is what you do. It sounds like a terrible way to do things, but maybe it is. I don't know. I've never done this before. Uh, how, how do you know for sure that your technique for constant time is working as you expect? That is um, actually a very, very interesting question. So to maybe explain what it means to implement such software first, there's two main sources for timing variation um, depending on secret data. One would be that you're branching on secret data. So saying something like, if the secret bit is set, do something. And if it's not set, do something else. Um, the other source would be accessing memory at a secret location. So typically, look up at a secret position, for example, which leaks through timing because of, among other things, caches. Now, when you're writing software, um, you 
have those two things in mind, and you, for many algorithms, it's very straightforward to just avoid those things. It becomes more interesting when you're working with algorithms where it's not straightforward. And maybe the most simple thing is comparing two strings. So just checking if um, some message authentication tag, for example, is valid. Just asking, are those 16 or 32 bytes the same as those 16 or 32 bytes? And, well, various ways of, uh, of doing this are just not constant time, and you're leaking how many bytes at the beginning are the same, and then at which position you differ, which is a problem. Now, when writing code, you keep this in mind. You, you try already to write code like this or at least put comments into the code that you need to fix later first when you make something work. Um, once you have code, the right thing to do would be, for, first of all, you need to verify it on the assembly level, either because you wrote stuff in assembly or well, binary level, really, um, or because you wrote it in a higher level language, but you want to make sure that the compiler didn't interfere. Um, one way to do this which is relatively easy, but is not sound and probably also not complete, is to use Valgrind. So this is something that um, Adam Langley, I think, came up first with. So this is a, a technique where you run Valgrind and you're not initializing secret data. Wait, so what is Valgrind? Valgrind is a tool to... Um, check for memory violations. And two things that Valgrind does is it warns you if you're branching on uninitialized data, because this is something that you basically never want to do. And it warns you when you're accessing memory at an uninitialized position, which is something else that you basically never want to do. And now in a cryptographic context, you're basically abusing these features of, um, of Valgrind by just saying, well, the secret data is not initialized. You can do this either by just not initializing it or by initializing it, but then sort of poisoning it from, from the perspective of Valgrind. The problem with this is that you may be running over the software uh, with Valgrind and all the code that is really executed in this, uh, in this run, Valgrind will check for these things. But it could be that on some other input data, you have a public input and you're branching on that public input. So imagine that you're doing AES encryption and you're optimizing for short messages differently than for long messages. Now let's say that for all messages up to two kilobytes, you have something that is constant time and secure. And for something that is longer than two kilobytes, you don't. And now you run Valgrind in some tests, but you only test on inputs that are shorter than two kilobytes. Then Valgrind will tell you everything is fine but for long messages, actually it isn't. So that would be a problem. Then again, for most software that we're writing, if we know what we did and if we have in mind how to design our test cases, it gives at least a pretty good idea if things are done right or not. Um, there's also several different tools that do a sound analysis. Uh, there is CTVerif, which was uh, presented at Usenix 2016. There is BinSecRel, which was recently presented. Um, all of these tools, I would say, have certain shortcomings, either because they don't work on binary level, like CTVerif, for example, doesn't, or because they don't support all architectures with all instructions. So for some maybe hand-optimized assembly implementations, they just wouldn't be able to run through. And generally, these tools 
at least many of them are not as easy to install and then later use as just run a Valgrind over it. So y- y- there's a lot of different types of side channel attacks, as far as I know. There's timing attacks, which we just discussed, but there's also power analysis attacks where um, a, a primitive could use different amounts of power depending on what it's doing. And then based on the amount of power that's used, you can determine information about secret keys or, or other uh, sensitive information. Um, so could you explain why so much of the research seems to focus on timing attacks? Are they more important than these other side channels? And if so, why? Um, so there's basically two reasons for this, I would say. One reason is, well, there's also a whole lot of research being put into protecting against power analysis or EM analysis attacks and countermeasures. But it is different kind of countermeasures than what we see for timing attacks. So one thing is that for timing attacks in principle, we know how to systematically avoid them completely by writing constant time code, which is not the case for most of these other attacks. They're, the situation is more like you can prove something about some implementations in some model, but then this model is only well an approximation of reality, and the question is, well, how good this model really is where you prove something and what it really means for the real world. Whereas for timing attacks, we can just say they're eliminated in principle. So that is one difference. The other difference is that for power or EM analysis, you need to get close to the device. So for example, if somebody, an attacker, would open up my laptop and put a power probe on the CPU, I would probably notice that. And this is even more true if you're thinking about big servers where they're in a locked room and you can have pretty serious security protocols. Nobody will get close enough to those devices to mount such an attack. Timing attacks, you can mount remotely. So it's much, much harder to think about systems that don't care about timing attacks. So basically, I would say that any cryptographic system probably cares about or should care about timing attacks. Whereas for many systems, it's at least you could argue that power analysis is not that relevant. Okay, I see. Um, so I guess maybe I, maybe I should ask a question that's on my mind. Um, I see that a lot of these competitions and a lot of the courses that use these, uh, the, that, that focus on these topics uh, still use C a lot and assembly a lot. And so there, there's no problem. I see is wonderful and assembly is very interesting. Lots of fun to play with. I've never personally used assembly for cryptography. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, there are some new technologies out there like uh, Rust, for example. And uh, people who proponents of Rust um, really like it because it seems to be as fast as C in many cases, in most cases, and at the same time uh, is safe. So you, when you're writing Rust code, you get guarantees of memory safety that don't exist in C without having to do uh, too much extra work. Uh, some people might disagree with that last part, given how onerous the uh, borrow checker uh, is at certain points in time. But uh, in general, you do get the same sort of performance and low-level benefits of, of C uh, without having to um, deal with with the enormous, like, kind of like laughable lack of safety that that working with C gives you. So how do you see the future of Rust? How do you see the future of, of Rust? And um, do, you, do you think that uh, eventually you would like to work with Rust instead of C, or do you actually prefer C for, for some reason, and would you like to stick to C? 
so yeah, I, I fully agree that the Rust gives you a lot that, that C is kind of lacking. And I've also seen pretty fast Rust code also on embedded microcontrollers that then perfectly integrates also with assembly. So from, from, from a technology point, there's really no reason to not use Rust. But the problem that we are facing here is that a lot of code out there is just in C. So that there's, there's reference code of all kinds of crypto that is, is already in C. So you would have to start rewriting that. And in addition to that, there's just many more people that know C and don't know Rust. So I think this all needs to change and then we can in the long term move to Rust and, and have better code. But I think that is that is slowly happening in, in the in the field. So if you're teaching a bunch of students the techniques that they need to learn in order to write safe, low-level crypto, you're going to be teaching them those techniques in C. Do those techniques port to Rust? I, I imagine they do. Um, the, the syntax is similar. It's, it's a matter of logic, not a matter of language, etc. But could you confirm that that is the case? Well, when, when you say we teach them in C, we actually teach in a combination of assembly and C. So there's a few techniques where really you need to go to the assembly level. Also, I would say that no matter in what higher level language you, lose, you use for some um, well, higher level constructs, it is good to be able to understand the underlying assembly, which well, if you've written some, it actually does help a lot. So, yeah, so sh at the moment it is a combination of C and assembly, and I would hope that in the very long run we use a combination of Rust and Jasmine. That's actually very, very true. And I, I realized this point that you just said about understanding the low-level logic recently in a way that has nothing to do with cryptography. So I, I've been recently working on a pet project of mine, which is an AI that plays the game Othello, the Japanese like uh, flip reverse. It's called reverse sometimes. And I wanted to make it really, really fast. So I started by writing it in Go and I hit a sort of like bottleneck and how fast or, or limit and how fast I can make it in Go. And then I wrote it in Rust. And it was very, very fast. And then I wrote it in C. And then I discovered that other people have been writing parts of it um, like their own AIs. I started looking at what other people were doing. And they were converting some of the more hot you know, pieces of code, like, for example, finding available moves into assembly. And that was actually the first time in my life that I uh, was like genuinely interested and also benefiting from looking at low-level code. And it had nothing to do with Because in cryptography, I work with protocols, right? And so I don't really care about low-level code at all. Uh, Kartik cares. Kartik works on primitives, but um, uh, you know that's why FSTAR compiles to uh, C via Kremlin and so on. But when you're just like designing and verifying high-level specifications, you don't really care. But it was anyway. It was really interesting, and um, it was the first time in my career or in my like just intellectual life as as a computer person that I had something to gain. And it's true, you know, when you're looking at the low-level way that things work on a computer, you gain a level of insight. And also it's very intellectually satisfying because you get to see, you, you get to understand things more. So, so all, all, all this rant is to, is to encourage listeners in case they're students to, yes, you know, like do, do spend the time to, to look at how things work at the low level. It's, it might seem a bit like too much work at first. And it is, you know, like doing something in the low level is just so much more work than doing it on the high level. But the amount of intellectual uh, understanding that you can gain from that and just technical understanding is, is worth it. So take it from Peter and Matthias, but also take it from me. This is something that is worth doing. Uh, let's let's do a case study of a particular primitive that I'm sure pops up a lot in your courses. So AES, I'm sure, is something that must be covered in some way or another. And uh 
AES is, is a very interesting target. So let's talk about, for example, what when you're teaching your students about AES, what do you focus on in terms of uh, guarding against side channels? So maybe one thing that's probably very important is S-boxes. So could you explain why uh, S-boxes in AES, for example, could cause a problem in terms of side channels and how you avoid the problems caused by um, AES using uh, S-boxes? It's actually even worse than just S-boxes. So... Generally, the idea of an S-box is, well, at least conceptually, that you have some secret value or secret dependent value, and you use that to look up another value and you replace it by it. Now, this is exactly this pattern that I mentioned earlier, which gives rise to timing attacks, specifically cache timing attacks, because the address that you're using to index memory is secret. Now, for AES, it's even worse. So the um, the S-box of AES is an 8-bit uh, to 8-bit S-box. But the typical implementation technique for 32-bit or 64-bit processors is to use even bigger tables by um, combining shift rows, mixed columns, and the S-box into bigger so-called T-tables. So in, in this context, the traditional... AES implementations that were actually advertised and described already in the proposal of, of, of Rheindahl for the advanced encryption standard um, turns out to be extremely insecure against timing attacks. You could say it's by now the textbook example for cache timing attacks to use T-tables-based AES. However, because the algorithm was designed to well, make this the best or the fastest implementation, there's Many implementations that use this, and they're still out there in cryptographic libraries. Partially, well, because it's very easy to implement AES like that. It's actually very nice code. You look through it, you understand what's going on. It's, it's beautiful. It's just insecure. Um, the other reason is performance. So many architectures, it's just hard to implement AES without this technique and still get decent performance, or it's maybe actually even impossible. So... In the course that, that we're teaching, um, we start by, by showing this technique and actually how to op optimize this technique on the assembly level because there's many nice tricks to, to, to highlight this. So the T-tables-based approach, I mean. And then we tell students, well, here's the reason why you shouldn't be doing this. So you should be able to recognize it. And then you should not be using it. And there's essentially three alternatives to using um, the T-tables approach. One is bit slicing. And maybe we can talk about this in a bit more detail. Then on some architectures, there is the vector permute approach. And then there's the actually very, very boring approach that is becoming more and more prevalent these days. And that is that the processor you're working on has AES implemented in hardware. So you just have a sequence of 10 instructions, for example, on recent Intel processors that just say, do one round of AES. Um, so... Two techniques that I see coming up a lot, and one of them you just mentioned, are bit slicing and vectorization. Uh, are these, maybe they're the same technique, I don't know, but could you explain what these are, how they work, and how they're relevant to AES? So let's maybe start with vectorization because it's the more general technique. So vectorization says that instead of working on scalar values, so for example, take a 32-bit integer, take another 32-bit integer, add the two, store the result. You're loading a couple of 32-bit integers, so say four, into a 128-bit register. 
you're doing this another time, and then you do four editions in parallel on these 128-bit register, and then store it back. And you can do this on multiple different data types. So you could do this on bytes, you could do this on floating point numbers on some uh, CPUs, uh, you can do this on 32-bit, 16-bit integers, whatever. The reason that vectorization is used so much is that, well, really what you're investing in, in circuit area is what you really care about, namely the arithmetic. The whole decoding stage, the fetching stage of the instruction costs the same, no matter if afterwards you do four editions in parallel or just one edition. So it's a very circuitry efficient approach to get more efficient arithmetic, if you can make efficient use of it in your algorithm. So generally, it's, it's a very specific way of parallelizing vectorization. And very often, CPUs that do offer this, it's not so much the case on small embedded microcontrollers, at least on very small ones, you don't have it. But definitely, any smartphone today has it. Every desktop CPU has it. And um, a few more like intermediate embedded microcontrollers as well. So the, the, the typical technique is to make best use of these instructions. It's typically the most powerful computational units. Compilers don't do a very good job at automatically using these instructions, at least not in cases where it's not exactly trivial. So then you need to rethink your algorithmics and, um, and rewrite the code correspondingly. So bit slicing, you can think of as a very special case of factorization where the elements in the vector are just one bit long. And now you perform arithmetic on, well, parallel arithmetic, but on one bits, basically. You just do this 32 times or 64 times or maybe up to 256 times in parallel, depending on how long your vectors are. And the operations that you're performing on one bit elements are bit logical operations. So it's something like an XOR or an AND or maybe an OR operation. That's one way to think about it. That's a way that I like to think about it. Another way to think about it is that, well, because there's a correspondence between these bit logical operations and gates, as in hardware gates, you're in a way simulating hardware implementations in software. So when writing bit sliced code, what you're usually doing is you look at literature describing efficient parallel hardware implementations and then you end up simulating those in software by writing your algorithm to operate really on um, on bits using bit logical operations. All right. So, and so are there any other considerations that you need to take into account when working with AES? Because as far as I know, the other operations in AES are constant time, right? Is, is it just... Is it just a matter of uh, dealing with the S-boxes, implementing bit slicing and vectorization whenever appropriate? Or are there any other considerations that you have to worry about when dealing with AES? So when you're bit slicing AES, it means really completely rewriting the implementation. It's not like you're using the original AES implementation, T-tables-based implementation, and then you have some operations in there that suddenly um, you bit slice because there would be a problem you need to change the data representation to work in this bit slice domain efficiently. Generally, bit slicing can be done on, on any algorithm that you can write a hardware circuit for, so really pretty much anything. Um, the performance of a bit sliced AES implementation very much depends on 
uh, how efficiently you can perform these bit logical operations and on how many bits can you do that in parallel. It depends on the mode of operation that you're using AES in because you need to have enough parallelism, which can partially come from um, parallelism inherently in AES. So, for example, the fact that the S-box is carried out on 16 bytes in parallel independently. But you need, typically, at least if you have registers that are longer than 16 bits, you need some parallelism on top of this, which typically comes from multiple blocks of AES. And that requires a parallel mode of operation. Um, and it highly depends on the number of registers that you have available, because very often in bit slice implementations, we see that the bottleneck in the end becomes not the bit logical operations, but just moving data between memory and registers, so loads and stores. Okay, so I'm trying to understand the technologies that you can use here. So I know for a fact that there is, um, like I mentioned earlier, the F-star programming language that um, can verify against the absence of certain side channel attacks, including, um, or perhaps exclusively, timing attacks. So how do you feel about the um, claims being made by these tools, and are they relevant to your work? Would, would you be interested in using F-star and the Kremlin compiler that extracts the F-star program into C? Um, uh, you know, are you confident with the guarantees uh, sometimes claimed by these tools? And do you see them as something that you would use in your work? So what I'm currently trying to use is a different high assurance tool chain, which is uh, the Jasmine programming language and then well, doing proofs in EasyCrypt. Um, generally, I mean, I think the, the work on, on F-star and, and the Kremlin compiler is great. There's Maybe when you're proving the absence of timing attacks, there is one tricky aspect in there, and that is that while you're writing, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that you have a very high-level, easy-to-read F-star implementation of some algorithm, and then you write a low-star implementation that is much closer to what you would write in C, and that gets translated by the Kremlin compiler to C. And then comes the really ugly part, and that is use a C compiler. Now, if you're writing certain kind of software, you, well, for a bit sliced implementation, the C compiler will have a really hard time to introduce timing vulnerabilities. It's just a sequence of XORs and ANDs and maybe a few ORs. This is something that also a C compiler won't turn into something dangerous. But in some subtle cases, compiler optimization may actually mess with what you're doing on a, in a higher level language. And realistically, the C compiler that is going to be used to translate the code that falls out of Kremlin to binary is something like Clang or GCC. So compilers that have not been built with compiling cryptography as a primary target, and in particular not with avoiding timing attacks. So that is maybe the most scary part, that there, while you, you verify certain properties on a rather high-level um, description, considering low star to be high-level, and then you, you throw tools at it that are just not necessarily built for the task. Well, they do use ComCert, though, right? Well, so for example, the code that comes out of HackleStar is being used in Firefox. How many people using Firefox would you think have compiled Firefox with CompCert? Well, I think that 
the um, I, I don't know for sure, but I think that probably there's a separate compilation chain for Hackle Star specifically, and then uh, that's shipped as a module. Uh, and uh, when you're when you're compiling Firefox on your Gen two laptop or something, um, you, you don't have to worry about correctly compiling Hackle Star. I, I don't know. I, I haven't looked at it, but it, that that makes probably sense to me. Uh, and let's assume that this is what they're doing. So that wouldn't be a problem, right? It, it, I don't think this is what they're doing. I'm pretty sure that also NSS, the NSS library, including Star, is actually afterwards compiled with just whatever standard compiler is sitting around. Partly because you wouldn't probably want Comsert in your, um, as a dependency in your build chain. And that is also because of license issues. You can't just use Compsert to compile code that may be used commercially. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. If you, for example, look at the, the NIST post quantum computation, they're looking at the finalists that are still still in there. I think every single one of them has something about that in their specification and is designing and designing the scheme in a way that can be implemented in constant time very easily. And also the reference implementations usually already take this part into account. So I think yes, there's there is a lot of progress there of people just taking this into account very early on. Okay, so that's that's definitely very encouraging, a very good note. Uh, all right, well, I think this has been a very cool episode. I encourage uh, students and listeners to look at the Optimizing Crypto on Embedded Microcontrollers course um, and series of learning materials. I, I think that uh, Peter and his team are a bunch of uh, uh, basically, you know, migrant wizards uh, going from town to town and imparting the wisdom of uh, optimizing cryptography for low-level systems on uh, local students, very much like a sort of like modern computer scientist Gandalf or something. Um, and that's pretty cool. So I'm going to link below to their list of tutorials, perhaps any future summer schools and events where they're going to be holding workshops at. And uh, if any listeners are interested, they can look more into these items and perhaps learn more about how to properly implement low-level cryptography. Um, Peter and Matthias, anything to say before we sign off? Thank you very much. I think it was, uh, was fun. I hope that uh, people, listeners, learned something. And um, yeah, it was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. 
Okay, thank you very much, Peter and Matthias. And thank you for listening to Cryptography FM. Maybe next time it'll be you on the show talking about your cool cryptography or cool software design or ideas that relate to cryptography. Uh, so if you have anything like that that you'd like to discuss, please send us a message and come on the show. But whether you're a listener or an active participant, I hope to see you again anyway next time on Cryptography FM.